Hey, everyone. Do you want to listen to What Next on your Alexa at home? If so, the folks here at Slate have built a new Alexa skill. If you just say Alexa, enable What Next, you'll be able to play the show pretty much whenever you want. You can just tell her to play What Next. It's pretty great. Check it out. All right. On to the show. This is what the Holiday Inn at the Des Moines airport sounded like four years ago, around 11 o'clock at night. The Iowa caucuses had just come to an end. Thank you. The betting money back then, it was still on President Hillary Clinton. But Bernie Sanders had gotten so close to taking this race, he could taste it. And tonight, while the results are still not known, it looks like we are in a virtual tie. In the end, less than a single percentage point kept Sanders from winning this state. Iowa was, was the place where he almost shook the world in 2016. If you remember, there was even this one caucus that came down to a uh, effectively a coin toss that he lost that kind of flipped that one over to, over to Clinton. Ryan Grimm at The Intercept, he says Sanders has spent a good chunk of the last four years thinking about Iowa, getting ready to do this all over again. Sanders is hoping this time around he'll come in first. You know, Joe Biden um, thinks, and, and probably some of the other candidates think, as long as they are competitive in Iowa, that they get a ticket out and then they have a chance to prove themselves later. Bernie Sanders really wants to to win Iowa, and he believes that kind of his campaign is is set up to do that. If you're Bernie Sanders, is that need to win? Is it about ego, or is it about something else? No, I, I think it's reality. I think that because he's been written off uh, for so long, and because so much of this campaign comes down to questions of electability, of who can beat Trump, that's what everybody wants to know, then you have to prove to Democratic voters that you can win. And the way you prove that uh, for somebody like Sanders is by actually winning. When it comes to fundraising, right now it certainly looks like Bernie Sanders is winning. In the last three months, he has raised more money than any other Democrat in the field. And in the polls, well, he looks like he's winning there, too. With just a few weeks before the caucuses, Iowa's become a three-way tie between him, Joe Biden, and Pete Buttigieg. So today on the show, Ryan's going to explain how Bernie Sanders is pulling this off. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. 
Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Ryan says the first thing you need to know about Sanders' campaign is that Bernie Sanders knows what you're thinking, that he's unelectable. He's a Democratic socialist, after all. If voters in Iowa, which still in the public imagination are seen as kind of these, you know, bumpkin farmers, even though most of them are kind of liberals in Des Moines. Uh, if Iowa goes for Bernie Sanders, then the, the public's imagination says, well, wait, maybe I was wrong. Maybe America is ready. So uh, he believes that that's his path to the nomination. And it's hard to see another one. Convincing caucus goers to turn out to support Bernie Sanders, it's become a really personal affair. Go to one of his events. You'll see people getting up on stage with the candidate testifying about their lives and the health care they can't afford, like this guy in Grundy Center, Iowa. It's uh, it's humiliating. Honestly, Bern, it's it's humiliating. I felt like when I was a little kid poor and I had the different colored lunch card and all the rich kids would pick on me then, that's exactly how I felt. He's telling the story of why he opted out of care at the hospital. He was afraid he just couldn't pay for it. I called my wife and I, she laughed at me hysterically when I said, you fucking tell Bernie, you tell him that your husband died because he couldn't afford to get fixed because they don't care if the poor drop. They don't care. What you won't see in clips like this one is the vast digital infrastructure inside this event looking for the next supporter to get up, tell their own story. Turning the lens toward the supporters is, is a way to empower people to feel like they're a part of this, what they what they continue to call a movement. And then at the campaign, there will be volunteers everywhere with, with iPads, you know, collecting your information so that uh, the campaign can then reach out to you soon afterwards to get you to come to whatever organizing event they've scheduled. And they've kind of honed their ability to connect people in a way that from there, they'll be able to create lots more volunteer events, whether they're, whether they're phone banks or whether in Iowa they're doing what they call uh, precinct mapping, which is, which is unique and hasn't, hasn't been reported before. And no other campaign has yet started doing this. I, I suspect it, it will be part of campaigning in, in future cycles, um, but it may be a comparative advantage that, that the Sanders campaign has now. Basically what they do- Well, hold on one second. Let, let's talk about this precinct mapping, because like sure. you said, you're the first person to report about it. So tell me how this is working for Bernie Sanders in Iowa. So you give uh, volunteers a list of all the people that live in their precinct, and which is basically your surrounding neighborhood. And you say to them, tell us who on this list here might be open to supporting Bernie Sanders, who is definitely a supporter of Bernie Sanders, who here could be persuaded, who here absolutely will never vote for Bernie Sanders, the last thing they'll ever do in their life. It sounds kind of like a, a bunch of spies. Right, because nobody knows uh, your neighborhood better than you do. And that's particularly true in a place like, like Iowa. The people that, that are volunteers for the Sanders campaign, they look at that list and they think, oh, I hadn't thought of this. This person, definitely, I talked to them once about tariffs or I talked to them about a trade deal. I talked to them about Medicare for all. You know, we could identify that person. It's just exponentially more efficient than, than door knocking or, or phone banking. You know, if you're hitting doors, you're lucky if you get four or five conversations in, in an hour. What makes this precinct mapping easier is the campaign's app. Volunteers can use it to keep track of people they know 
input information about how likely they think their friends are to support Bernie Sanders' campaign. And then the app will gently nudge them to reach out to those friends, get them to come to an event, get them to the polls. I mean, I opened up the Burn app just to see, like, what does this look like? It's sort of it has it has elements of like your own little Facebook, like you can find friends on there and connect with them. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair way to talk about it? Yeah, I think it is. And it it can be addictive because the first time you find somebody in there, you're surprised. Wow, this works. You know, you need the person's name, city and state, or or zip code. And you put that in, and if they're registered to vote already, then they're going to show up. And then it asks you, you know, a number of different questions about them that kind of helps identify what their political leanings might be, as well as then the specific questions of, you know, who they're supporting uh, for president. And I've been messing around with it, too, as part of the reporting for this. And, And they're pretty good at kind of nudging you and making you feel guilty. Like I plugged in my sister Amanda in there as undecided just to see how the system would operate. And recently they even kind of sent me a push note, hey, can you reach out to Amanda, check if she's still undecided? And then, you know, when you open it up, it's got that little red number one that that gives you that anxiety that there's something that you haven't done on the app. Like, oh, God, I got to do this. And then I'm like, wait a minute, I don't have to do this. I'm not I'm not a Bernie organizer here, but but they're they're very good at using kind of guilt and social pressure to kind of push you to continue um, doing what you committed to do in the beginning. Because the biggest problem with running a kind of volunteer army is that. Uh, it's not a conscripted army, it's volunteers. And so people volunteer all the time and then they just flake. And so th- this was an, is an answer to the question of how do, you, how do you get that flake rate down as small as possible? The other thing about empowering volunteers to drive the campaign forward like this is that they might actually be more effective than traditional staffers. If you get a text from a campaign reminding you that today is election day, that's better than not getting any text at all. And studies will show that that will increase the likelihood that you'll turn out slightly. But if you get a text from a friend or from your aunt that today is election day, and remember you told me that you were going to go out and vote for Bernie Sanders, you're hugely more likely to act on that text. You don't, you know, you don't want to disappoint your aunt. You, know, you had told her a month ago you would do it. Now she's reminding you. And so what the, what the campaign is doing is it sends kind of push alerts through this app to people and says, hey, can you, can you reach out to Amanda and ask Amanda you know, to go out and vote? today. And so they don't communicate directly with the people whose information you're entering into the into their their data set. They continue to rely on you to be the point of contact with those people. So you're not getting kind of an automated bot coming from a campaign. You're getting a text, you know, from your nephew or from your from your cousin that's, hey, caucuses tonight. You're going, right? It's funny because part of what the Burn app does is it empowers individuals to basically act as campaign staffers. I mean, you said that the campaign is even asking folks to sign contracts, even though they're volunteers. Sort of like pseudo contracts that say like, so one of the recent additions is a program called Victory Captains. And so this is for early March states, uh, Super Tuesday and Super Tuesday 2, where um, people commit to 10 hours a week you know, the, a precise number, 10 hours a week at least of uh, volunteer work, which includes, you know, half an hour, hour conference call with other other organizers, plus some uh, half an hour call with, with a coach, whether it's a volunteer or a staff. And then the other eight plus hours are, are organizing events, 
door knocking, that sort of thing. And what comes with that is the title of victory captain. And a victory captain came to the event that I was at in uh, Virginia, and you could immediately tell that when she said she was a victory captain, that it did convey some authority among the other people there. They said, oh, great, you're a victory captain. Tell us, you know, when is Virginia's primary, for instance? So they become an authority. Right. It, just just from the title, they do become an authority. And in exchange for that authority, you know, they're, they're working that much harder uh, for, for the campaign. And that is a new innovation. It's, and it's risky because now there are 2,200 victory captains in Super Tuesday states around the country. Most of those have social media accounts. Probably hundreds of them have said ridiculous things that if uh, the media wanted to find one and write an article that says, you know, Bernie victory captain says X, Y, Z, you know, and that's the kind of thing that campaigns are generally nervous about. You know, this is not an employee. This is not someone we control. It's not somebody that we've thoroughly vetted. So why isn't the Sanders campaign nervous? Well, they may be, but it's part of their idea that in order to win, they're going to trust in people. It's it's a way of kind of tactics lining up with ideology and that, you know, if you really are a, a populist who believes in, in the power of the people, then you have to actually give some power to the people. And that comes with some risk. I mean, the other interesting thing is that this burn app, it's not just being used for Bernie. His campaign staffers talk about using the burn app to help digital organizing to support union actions, for instance. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So uh, Faz Shakir, the campaign manager, told me that when he first interviewed with uh, Sanders, he told him, you know, I, I want this campaign to be a movement and I want it to benefit the movement along the way. And so as they have found opportunities where their kind of organized base of supporters can influence an ongoing fight, they have they have done that. And they've been quick to point out that this has not been cost free. Every email that you send to benefit the Chicago Teachers Union strike, for instance, is an email you're not sending asking your supporters to give money. They even embedded a staffer with the with the teachers union um, for that strike in in Chicago, they you know cut several videos. Bernie rallied with them. It's kind of an innovation on what has been kind of a cliched campaign practice, which is the candidate shows up at, at the picket line. What the Sanders campaign does is actually help kind of organize the people who are striking. They they even held a kind of teach in where they coached something like six hundred teachers on how to effectively occupy. A lobby of a building and how to shut down a street. Because, you know, so many of the people from the Sanders campaign come from movements. This is what they've been doing. They've been protesting in the streets. They've been shutting down corporate lobbies. And there are, you know, techniques that, that they've developed over the years that your run-of-the-mill teacher might not be familiar with. But so they, they trained the teachers they, and they, the teachers did deploy um, some of these tactics in kind of winning their strike. You talked about how one campaign staffer said, we're probably the only campaign that could like start a blockade right now. <laughs> and then she right, sort of so looked around yeah. like, was I supposed to say that? Yeah. And then her colleague nearby said, yep, that's true. Don't worry about saying it. It's fine. You really 
embedded, it seems like, with the Sanders people and their organizing folks. You spent time with them. And I'm wondering if you can tell me something about these folks, whether their dedication to what they're doing is about Bernie Sanders or whether it's about beating Trump. Interesting. I think it's neither. It really is. A lot of it is climate justice uh, and social justice more generally. Like these, these are people who have been active in, in movement politics, in issue uh, politics for you know, more, than, more than a decade, most of them, um, some even more than that. And so to them, Sanders is, is a vehicle to accomplish that social justice agenda. Trump is in the way of that, and they want, you know, they want to beat Trump. But neither of those two are kind of the driving factors. I guess I asked the question because you made a pretty good case for how building this infrastructure could push Bernie Sanders to be the Democratic nominee. But if he isn't, the last time around, Sanders stuck in the race for a long time and, you know, people didn't coalesce. And I wonder if... For whatever reason, Bernie Sanders does not become the nominee where this phenomenal organizing power goes. So I, I asked his, a number of his organizers that very question. And the point that they made was this, that the amount of training and kind of community building that they're doing will not go away. But I also think that it depends on who that, who that nominee is. If it's a Joe Biden, then I think you know, no matter how enthusiastically Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, endorses him on this on the stage at the convention, it's going to be very hard to to get people, you know, excited about Joe Biden, for instance. Now they might they might be enthusiastic about beating Donald Trump, and so they might put in the work. If it's somebody like an Elizabeth Warren, she has a much better chance of galvanizing, you know, a huge portion of this Bernie base. But it, you know, it, it's hard to see Buttigieg or, or Biden getting them, getting people excited in a way that they're willing to do what they've been doing for Sanders. Doesn't mean they won't vote, but you know, I wouldn't expect to see the ten hours a week volunteer commitment and on and on. And, and there's really nothing. It's not even about Sanders or AOC or anybody at that point. There's these are you know grassroots volunteers who are going to make these decisions on their own, kind of regardless of what politicians tell them to do. Ryan Grimm is the D.C. bureau chief for The Intercept. His latest story is all about the Sanders campaign, and his book is We've Got People, from Jesse Jackson to AOC, the end of big money and the rise of a movement. Go check it out. All right, that's the show. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Mara Silvers, Jason DeLeon, and Mary Wilson. I'm Mary Harris. I will catch you back here tomorrow. <laughs> 